Every search you make, every click you take, they'll be watching you. Tired of companies like Google and Facebook watching everything you do online? There's actually a simple solution. DuckDuckGo. It's an all-in-one privacy app with a built-in private search engine, web browser, one-click data clearing, email protection, and more. All for free. Download the app today and get the most comprehensive privacy protection with the push of a button. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Hello, everyone. This is Rosie Tran, and welcome to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weibo.tv special report sponsored by our friends at DuckDuckGo. You may have heard my voice at the end of every episode on Weibo.tv. I'm the one asking you to leave a review. Which, by the way, I hope you've done, right? You've left us a review? Okay, great. Unless you're lying. <clears throat> well, I'm a lot more than a voice. I'm also Weibo.tv's intrepid reporter, and over the course of this miniseries, I'm going to share with you short, actionable tips you can use to protect your privacy. These tips were sourced by our fearless leader, he really hates when we call him that, BJ Mendelson. BJ, for those of you who may not know, is the author of the book Privacy and How We Get It Back, a book that was published in the before times. This means before COVID. BJ is currently writing a sequel called How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So everything we're going to hear in this miniseries is the most up-to-date information he's researched, bringing us into 2023 and beyond. Throughout the series, you're also going to hear from some special guests and experts in the information security field. You hear that sound? That means it's time for today's privacy tip. This week, BJ talks to Dr. Nicole Prouse, a neuroscientist and statistician at UCLA. Here at the show, we're big fans of pornography. So of course, we're also big fans of Dr. Prouse's research. You might have seen some of it this week concerning the psychological damage participating in NoFap can cause. And if you don't know what NoFap is, don't worry. It's just a recruitment tool, Reddit host for Nazis, misogynists, and the other future right-wing trolls of America. Dr. Prouse has done terrific work debunking a lot of anti-porn myths that circulate on the internet. But as you might have guessed, that research attracts a lot of fascists and weirdos. The kind of people who want to tell you what you can and can't do with your body because it'll upset their imaginary god. These fascists attack Dr. Prouse because they don't like her research debunking their anti-porn recruitment tools. And these weirdos attack Dr. Prouse because she's a woman on the internet with an opinion. Believe me, I know how that one goes. So in part one of our five-part investigation into how to protect yourself from fascists and weirdos, Dr. Prouse shares what her experience has been like, why the trolls are attacking her, and what she's done to protect herself. Before we get to the interview, we also want to share some quick tips to help you shore up your defenses. And this week, we'll focus on how to protect yourself from stalkers. First, if you found yourself in a situation with a stalker, do not respond to them. No matter what crazy or emotional manipulation they try on you, cut them off. Then, immediately find an attorney who can file a civil no-contact order. Although expensive, you can use PageVault to capture everything and anything a stalker might be sending to you. PageVault is one of the few programs where its files are considered legally admissible in court, so take advantage of their browser tool if you need it. The second thing you should do is set up a P.O. box a couple towns over from where you live and use an Amazon locker near the P.O. box instead of near your home for your deliveries. There are a number of personal mailbox services you can use if you want something more secure than a P.O. box. If you choose to go the personal mailbox route, make sure you thoroughly investigate the company and read all the reviews you can about them. We've touched on this in another episode, but if you create content for the internet, whether it's a YouTube channel or podcast, you should absolutely get a burner phone using Mint Mobile. Use that phone for all instances where you need to use your number online with those different platforms you use. We also suggest using an at duck email address to forward your emails. Never use your primary email. And make sure to only use your new phone for your public facing profiles and your personal phone only for friends and family. Speaking of friends and family, you'll need their help to keep safe from stalkers. Make sure they don't tag you, share information, or post photos of you. We know this is a pain in the ass and people love sharing photos, but you'll need your friends to help you on this front. Also, you'll want to make sure they block your stalker on all social media accounts. For any content you post, make sure there's nothing that can make your home identifiable from the outside. And if you're going to post photos, turn off geotagging and remove EXIF data using websites like the ones we've included in today's show notes. If you have any domain names that you own, now is an excellent time to make sure that those domains have private registration turned on. We also suggest that you go to Google and search for what's my IP address. Make sure your VPN is turned off when you do the search. Once you have your IP address, look at the different services you use and see if there have been activity from other IP addresses besides your own. That will let you know if someone else is accessing your accounts. And if you're not planning to use your social media profiles anymore or just want to limit who can see your posts, 
set your accounts to private. Finally, if you're dealing with a stalker, alert Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion at the numbers we've provided in today's show notes. Ask them to turn on fraud alert, which will make it harder for someone to contact them and ask for your information. This isn't a complete list. You should go back and listen to the previous episodes of this miniseries as well. The tips we provided in them will also help keep you safe. As BJ was writing this episode, news broke Azore Zadegi and her husband, Mohammed Nasseri, were both killed by crazed stalker who found Zahari through her podcast. We won't name the stalker because we think entitled men who shoot people should never be named. But we will let you know that women are twice as likely to be stalked and that over 13 million people in America each year are stalked. So this is something we want to take seriously. Please apply the tips in this episode as soon as you can. And now let's hear from BJ and Dr. Nicole Prouse. Nikki, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, for people who might not be familiar with you and your work, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself and uh, just tell us, I, I hate to say, give us a brief overview, but um, if you have a shorthand for describing your work, what would it be? I am a neuroscientist and statistician, and I largely study sexual psychophysiology and in the last few years have gotten more interested in health disinformation. So also do some studies with social media, internet. Yeah, and so I, I came across your, your work with dealing with disinformation. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit about just what what caused you to move in that direction from the, from what you were studying before? <laughs> yeah, it was a very strange experience. So I, by chance, I had a student who wanted to study the theory of pornography addiction as a part of his dissertation. And he happened not to find evidence for it. And it became the first neuroscience study on that topic. And we published in 2013. And I didn't have any background in pornography research, especially. I mean, we use porn all the time in our research. But uh, when that published, um, I was immediately contacted by people threatening me um, and immediately became death threats. <laughs> like I, I hadn't said a word. <laughs> Uh, and they were, you know, we're going to take you out. And I was like, what is happening? Like, <laughs> who are these right. people? So being a sex researcher, we do have protests. Like I worked at the Kinsey Institute. We had physical protesters there uh, somewhat regularly. We needed to know about uh, bomb threats and things there because people are hostile to this research in the U.S. But I'd never had anything at the volume and scale that that was happening. And so as I got to know these groups over time, um, you know, I learned a little bit more about like how they were operating, how they were similar or different from other groups um, that people had already studied extensively. And so now I'm getting to know more about kind of what the strategies are, how these groups operate. And um, that's become a primary interest now. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's something that we're seeing in all facets of life, you know, whether it's from our politics down uh, to walking the dog, you, can, you can't seem to escape, to escape uh, what I like to dub fascists and weirdos. <laughs> On the air, on the internet, which is why we do, which is why I'm doing the podcast, right? Because I, I want to be able to help people better protect themselves. Uh, tell me, like, what? So they were angry at your your research assistant put out a paper. What made them so angry? Like, what what got them so wound up? It was my doctoral student, and we didn't find evidence for pornography being addictive, and they were convinced that it was. And anyone who said otherwise, you know, was lying, a shill in porn, a liar, you know, a bitch, a cunt, you know, all the, a Jew was one of them. I was like, so it kind of was like this convergence of a number of conspiracy theories that demonized pornography. And so, you know, if you had anything to say about it, that wasn't that it was evil and addictive and destroying men, white men, um, then you were part of this conspiracy in some way, and they just weren't sure which part of the conspiracy I was in yet. Right, right yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Having been called a Jew multiple times on Twitter <laughs> um, and being accused of being part of a vast globalist conspiracy, I, 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 told, I, I feel for you. Um, let me. So let me ask you, what did you, what did you learn about these groups? Like, what were they coming from? Were they coming from the right? Were they coming from the left? Like, what were they? Maybe foreign actors that were disguised as American citizens, because we see that a lot in disinformation research. Like, I'm curious about what the source was behind these people. There had been some research already written about the anti-pornography movement in the U.S., and what had been remarkable so far about it was there was a coordination between uh, feminist scholars and religious groups, which normally those two groups do not get along. Right. <laughs> they have very right. different viewpoints and goals. And uh, but in the case of pornography, their goals were aligned. You know, they wanted to see pornography removed from the internet. 
just done, you know, very censorship oriented. But what I felt was novel, you know, so this was a paper that was, you know, 15 years ago, um, and, you know, a couple kind of related was these new groups, they were purely online. And now we've got some more research coming out about them, but um, that were looking to profit off of it. So they're selling treatments to young men saying, you know, you have erectile dysfunction, you have this, you have that. You're going to be so embarrassed with women if you don't come to me to treat your problem. And uh, these are not problems that <laughs> we, we've studied them extensively. Not, you know, erectile dysfunction exists, but not in the way that they claim. Yes. You can treat erectile dysfunction, but not in the way that they claim. And so uh, I think now there's a collusion of those three groups where we've got religious groups, some feminists who've always opposed pornography that have been around. Um, and there's always been that schism in the feminist community about pro, uh, pro versus anti-pornography viewpoints. And now this new profiteering group that really seems right. motivated by, you know, I'm going to get something from this. And I do think it's not always necessarily financial. Some of them seem more fame driven, you know, like I, I want to go on TV shows and, um, you know, debate me, I'll see you on this and that show. And it's just like, I don't know, uh, maybe it's financial underlying that. I don't know, but, uh, those are the groups that I'm doing a bit more work with. Right. And if you see me making faces, I'm making faces at those people, not, not you. Like, I'm, like, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, because okay. this is something that, that we've heard again and again and again, right? Like it's, uh, are you finding that the people that are trying to attack you for a profit, what would you say the split is between the three groups? Like, are you finding that it's it's a majority of people trying to profit or is it more evenly distributed between the three groups? I think it's the same kind of unholy alliance. Some of those early research papers wrote about that is these groups generally uh, seem to oppose what their religious groups that they're now openly coordinating with would oppose. So one of them says, you know, we're anti-censorship. We don't want to censor anything. And yet they're speaking on behalf of this religious group that wants to remove all porn from the internet. Right. And it's like, well, <laughs> you can't say both. You can't say we're not anti-porn, but we just want to remove it all from the internet and we'll speak on your behalf if you pay us. So <laughs> it's a, I think it's one of those kind of unholy alliance uh, things. My sense is the there certainly are still, you know, anti-porn feminists, but they don't seem to have as loud of a voice. It really seems to be this alliance of the profit, profiting life coach kind of style uh, wow. online. And then these religious groups that seek to ban porn where they can kind of feed off each other's energy for, you know, their own purposes. Right. And so it's fascinating that it's like, cause we always, we, we be like journalists, right. Are always reading about the, the creator economy. And, and one of the things they tell you in the creator economy is to take strong polarizing positions in order to stand out. But it, you're like on the receiving end of that, right? Like we always hear the positive side of it of, yeah, you should take strong positions, but then we have people that are taking strong positions and attacking you for profit. Are you finding that these people are, are, utilizing bots and fake accounts to do their like uh, to form an echo chamber and create a, an, an appearance of an audience right like so they're building a fake audience and they're attacking mm -hmm. they're attacking you and then they're hoping the fake audience is large enough to attract the attention of other journalists to write about it does that make sense yeah, that some of that is definitely happening, and it's at least in two interesting ways. So uh, on the one hand, like some of the larger accounts in these um, kind of online profiting movements um, are appear to have a high amount of fake followers. So of course, they're hoping to conceal that, and so we use algorithms that have been published that you know, have their all pluses and minuses as to how they make those estimates. But like the largest account in that space has forty percent estimated fake followers on Twitter. So I said, okay. Uh, it turns out the identify uh, identifying bots on Reddit is a bit more tricky, and that's a place they do a lot of their uh, writing to some extent, 4chan to some extent, Discord. But things are even less developed in those spaces, and so a lot of the uh, messaging for them is on Twitter. So I'm assuming there's comparable amounts on Reddit, but I could be wrong there. It's difficult to, to estimate. Uh, so that's one. And the other is just sock puppetry. So when they find people they don't like, uh, they know they can't have their main person go threaten to kill them or use misogynist language. So they'll always create anonymous accounts and they'll even brag about it. You know, a lot of the, uh, like all the death threats I get are from anonymous accounts. And I feel like I, I know who they are <laughs> most likely, but uh, you know, it's uh, that kind of it's almost like they have these hired attack dogs. You know, they know their stuff they're not supposed to do, but they, they're going to do it anyway. 
And so they they do the abuse through these anonymous accounts. So like when the kiwifarms.net that just went down, uh, they listed me on there, you know, like go get her. And I was like, of course they did, you know, <laughs> and anonymous account. And so it, it's not just me to be fair, you know, but it's, right. uh, so I think they're kind of using at least those two. So uh, heavy use of like stock puppetry to abuse, attack, you know, do things they know they're not supposed to be doing. Um, and then also uh, some amount of fake accounts that I have a, a good sensor, at least heavy on Twitter. So I'm assuming on other platforms as well, but that's always a problem in science and social media research is a lot of us are platform specific. You know, we study yes. this area or that area and we don't know how much they bridge across. And this is definitely one of those cases where it's like they're present in multiple environments. And, uh, and some of them also have their own forums. They host their own forums. And so I have, you know, no uh, real access to it. And they threatened to, you know, if you study our open forums, we'll sue you. Like they've threatened to sue scientists if they study them. Um, you know, good luck. <laughs> but it's, you know, they really do not want to be studied. They want to be outside of the law and outside to do whatever they want to do. And so they uh, created some of those forums, I think, to try to shield themselves from those issues. I'm a Facebook hipster. I then deleted my Facebook account and then re-upped it in 2005 and have not been able to get off the stupid thing since. So, so why can't you get off? So what, what are your, <laughs> you guys. The award-winning Smashing Security Podcast, hosted by Graham Cluley and Carol Terrio each week. It takes an irreverent look at cybersecurity and online privacy, helping you find out what's happening with your data. Find it in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps, or at smashingsecurity.com. It's not all filth. Right. And just just to, like, to stress to people listening at home, I was watching a clip of you on the Today Show, uh, and it was about, like, just, like, it was just about how masturbation can be, you know, pain, really pain, um, which which is something that I think is more people need to hear. Like, so you're not out there saying, like, crazy things. You're, you're out there saying, no, this is what the science says, and they're still, they're still coming after you. So tell me, like, I, I always hate asking this question, but, like, what, what, What's it, I, you know, obviously it's terrible, but what, what's it been like if you can describe to people listening who haven't been on the receiving end of this so they understand that there's a human toll involved? Like, could you tell us a little bit like just about what, what this experience has been like? Yeah. So, and maybe it's helpful too to folks who may be experiencing some of this, you know, the things you can do to be helpful in that space also. Um, I'm very lucky to be in California. In California, we have uh, what's called a safe at home program, which is an address protection program. So because I can show I'm a victim of stalking and doxing threats, um, I'm eligible for this free program where my address is not listed anywhere. So I go to the DMV and they don't take my physical address, even though they require, you know, of other folks. Um, if somebody puts it on their website and they don't take it down, they can face, you know, face civil fines. They do it anyway. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. These can be very hard to get down, but there's at least a mechanism there uh, to contact then if the person won't do it. Um, generally their website will, uh, you know, with some unfortunate exceptions. So there's, there are sometimes like state by state, they'll have programs that can kind of help, uh, protect and enforce these things. Um, I'm very cautious to never talk about family. I don't take photographs with my family, uh, for the express purpose of being concerned about them being hacked from a cloud where people could, you know, become aware of who I spend my time with. Um, you know, I belong to some recreational clubs. I always ask them not to take photographs, even though they have social media accounts, because I don't want people to know where I am regularly, because that can right. create, uh, create a problem. Um, I don't have any mail ever delivered to me for packages. So all Amazon must go to lockers, you know, use those services to, uh, to keep things safe and away from you. Uh, and it's a variety of things like that. Those are the ones that come to mind, but, you know, being mindful of IP addresses, like when I visit websites, um, you know, if I need to use VPN, uh, you know, I've had people try and trick me, literally send me, you know, redirecting URLs that scrape the IP address. And I thought it's a good thing I know what those are because 
most people I think don't work in that space and don't know that it's a trick. Um, and you know, something that was legit, it just <laughs> like had this, uh, I was familiar with the service they were using to scrape the IP address. Um, it's yeah, just being mindful of all of those, those kinds of things. Um, and it's hard because they're earlier on, you know, there were some people that asked about, uh, like they asked for family photos with early media I had done and I had given those at the time. I wouldn't do that anymore. Um, but you know, it's like, okay, those are out there. That's something I can't take back. And so people know that at least I came from this family, from this part of the country. Uh, I'm not thrilled about that being out there. So I just don't repeat it, <laughs> but I can't really get those back. And so if I, you know, it's some other advice, you know, I wouldn't give that stuff up in general now. And it does suck to see other people talking about milestones and, you know, if they have uh, kiddos that are doing cool things um, or family events, but you just, it's not worth the risk. Yeah, it's just I, not to participate in social media in that way. I think that that's, that's good becoming more, I think more people are going to start to do that though, right? Like to just separate themselves from the platforms for, for that reason, right? Like you, you can't share and you can't participate within why are you there? Right. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, the other, the fun goes away. Uh, they've taken that fun from you, which I think really sucks. Let me, let me ask you in the research that you've done, you mentioned that you've had access to Twitter's API. Have you found anything within that that has surprised you? Yeah, I've started doing research mainly on Twitter and on Reddit on these communities. And the Twitter, I started doing network analyses and network analysis general. Uh, generally, you call it social network analysis to see how people are connected. And so I'm trying to replicate some other work. None of this is currently published in this space. So uh, they're just very basic questions about uh, comparing accounts that are pro-pornography and anti-pornography. And these are generally accounts where we wouldn't debate. You know, there's <laughs> it's not unclear <laughs> which side they're on. And you look to see uh, how they tend to use the media differently. So if they're retweeting at higher rates, um, if they're liking a variety, a more wider variety of accounts, you know, if they're primarily cross-posting, how tight their networks are, that is, if they're really just talking to each other. Uh, I'm really interested in a lot of the work Sanan Aral has done, who's an MIT in this space. Uh, so I, I poke him periodically for insight when I can get his time. And uh, just understanding, uh, you know, in part how those behaviors are similar or different, and then how the information flows through those networks, because you know, a lot of what's frustrating about how they operate is these anti-porn groups claim to own science, but they don't work with any scientists. Right. And so we see them put out this stuff, oh, porn does this, porn does that. And I'm like, okay, that's definitely not true. <laughs> but, you know, is there a space to combat that disinformation? Because um, we know they they don't want to hear it, but there are people that see it and also journalists. And journalists can't discriminate. They So there was a paper out recently by Dr. Kelsey Burt that looked at expertise in the media on the pornography topic, and especially in the neuroscience area, like the top 10 cited people on neuroscience and pornography, none of them were neuroscientists or had any training. Wow. <laughs> I, just, wow. It's, I, sh I, sh I shouldn't be surprised, but <laughs> wow. Because they're, all, you know, we're not a huge group. Sex researchers are uh, a very niche specialty, a small specialty, but, uh, but we're easily accessible. You know, we're not hard to find. So it's frustrating to see that bad information get out when we're working to try and get accurate information out. And so hopefully if you understand the information flow, you can see, you know, in the case of some of these networks that have been analyzed, like, is there a particular bad actor, someone who's really the source of a lot of it? And uh, so we definitely had that. So I have an interesting kind of natural event. One of the main people spreading scientific disinformation in that space died in May of 2021. I'm uh, not sure why I've heard conflicting reports about how that happened. They won't, they won't uh, be missed. Yeah. <laughs> like that, but that's just been, I, I said it on you. But. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's interesting because I now have that historical Twitter information right. and a natural experiment where when that disinformation source was cut off, um, you know, what happened? Now someone's taking over his account and started of course, posting of course. again. Um, <laughs> but... It, it's very different, a uh, very different flavor and interaction style now. Uh, we used to be very aggressive and threatening and that's a little more past. So it's just like all those kinds of things we're trying to take advantage of to understand what the information flow looks like uh, within Twitter. And what I was really excited about 
is Twitter uh, has paid tier access for researchers. Like you can pay to get additional information or you can be an academic and get permission for specific projects, um, which I was uh, recently granted for a project I've been hoping for. And they give us some nice data. So for example, um, I get to see now uh, how people are posting. So some of the tweets were part of Twitter ad campaigns. I said, they're paying for, are you kidding me? (laughs) It's like, no wonder. And so, you know, seeing which of these anti-porn accounts are actually, you know, relying on monetization, like they're capital, they're not just passively, you know, oh, I'm just here to help. Like, no, you're making money. Here's the advertising campaign. This is where that one went. And so now I can look at it in a more in-depth way to understand, you know, what's the impact of their utilization of that. You can see instances where a lot of different people are accessing an account versus primarily having one person over time. And that's based primarily on behavior. So if you're worried, I don't get IP addresses. You know, it's not at that level, um, but we do get geo. So we have some sense of where things are. Um, I was surprised <laughs> by that. And I'm still kind of learning. Geo data are kind of tough to work with if you've ever worked with them before. So, um, you know, it's not that I can go and figure out what house, you know, something came from. It's not at that level. Um, but it's useful for me to see, you know, how are these accounts being sometimes shared uh, among activists or, you know, is it, does it really appear to be a sole actor in some of the cases? So, you know, one of the accounts, it was the opposite. I thought, you know, they said they had a staff, uh, like this big group that was running it. It's definitely one person. (laughs) That's one person, the way that's operating, the time, you know, series of posting. So it's interesting to be able to look at those behaviors in a really fine grained way to get insight into you know, like how is this network uh, coordinating to spread this information in the way that they are? And the strategies do differ. So I wouldn't say I have like a unifying strategy for Twitter at this point. It's uh, it's a very complex social network. And so I'm still trying to understand like how to best conceptualize those. But if people are interested, we also use Gephi, which is a free public tool. And uh, you can have pretty low-level account access and still use Gephi to scrape and do social network structures at a very basic level to see, you know, like what accounts are connected, how do people interact over time. Um, so that's even if you're a citizen scientist, you know, you can get hold of that and with a little trouble, uh, get it up and running to see how groups are connected and how they communicate with each other. So I'm really interested in like, you know, how uh, how connected they're actually overlapping or not overlapping with like other scientific communities. And, you know, so my my assumption is we're probably looking at an echo chamber and that's what I'm going to be looking to document. Uh, but maybe not, you know, if they do have contact with those communities that they claim to represent as science, um, how are they doing that? You know, is there any, any information flow from the science into them? Is it all out where they're trying to solicit, you know, and the scientists are like, <laughs> stay away from me. Yeah, which like uh, anecdotally, I that's what I've seen, you know, is they try and tag the scientists and the scientists you know, don't respond or ignore them for the most part, but they don't always know, you know, uh, who these groups are. So, uh, so there are just lots of cool questions we can answer by looking at it from a kind of network perspective. Yeah, tell me. So, tell me about the going back to the individual that that passed away. What what were you able to see with with that data of their influence into other? Like, what were you able to pull from that that trove of data that that surprised you, or maybe confirms what you had thought about them? Uh, so, they give us access to person tagging. So, noting any time uh, identifiable name has been noted. And that person was especially um, like vicious and attacking individual people. They name people individually more than almost any other account, proportionately that I've been looking at, which would have been my guess. That's why I look <laughs> into the data. Um, and they also, uh, so you can do what's called a sentiment analysis. So sentiment looks at just generally what the emotional tone is of posts. And that person also, like their post expressed a significant amount of disgust. So the way that they would post is say, you know, John Smith is a filthy, what, what, and what, you know, <laughs> uh, disgusting piece of garbage, blah, blah, blah. Um, and now rather than just saying, I think this person's mean, <laughs> you, can, you can demonstrate with numbers, like yes. no, this person um, expressed a lot of negativity, especially around individual scientists and in particular using the affective disgust. So you can see where he's ginning up that hatred, 
you know, and trying to say, go after these people, they're bad, they're, you know, they use the word vile a lot, um, which is, you know, really <laughs> strong, terrible word. Right. Um, so it gives you a way of kind of saying, you know, what does that actually look like when it's enacted? Uh, and similarly, like they had a, a large enough following um, that appears to have shifted a lot, which is interesting, um, where you can see that higher affectivity getting more engagement. You know, so they were doing it for the clicks, you know, yes. oh, we're, I'm just trying to communicate. And these people are coming after me like, no, you're, you know, the, the more vile you are in terms of the language, um, you know, the more engagement you're getting from an audience. So you're looking for fame in this case. Uh, that person didn't have a business around it. Um, and now we have some documentation of it. And so it's like, OK, do I want to write something scientifically about that person and kind of how they were being interacting um, but I see, you know, that's part of the network. His job was to be the really disgusting kind of nasty person uh, who everyone would pretend they were clean of. You know, oh, I wouldn't talk that way, but you should go read what so-and-so is writing. Yeah, they so a lot of people linked into him uh, and kind of used that language. Uh, and I see it in a very similar vein to, I'm not sure this is the perfect comparison, but I'm going to try it on publicly. Yeah. <laughs> so is uh, kind of like with abortion debates, you know, obviously people feel very strongly about abortion and sometimes the language uh, of anti-abortion activists would be, uh, you know, these doctors, they're murderers, they're serial killers, we got to slash them. And then someone would kill a doctor and they'd be like, well, well, we didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking. That's, we don't own that. And so I'd say, no, like you do own this person. Like you, right. you, inc you incited this, you were using that kind of language in a very intentional way. And so I see this interaction very similar to that. You know, it's like they try and gin up as much hate as possible. And then, you know, when someone acts out, so we had, um, as far as I know, there have just been two uh, mass murders that have had some interaction with those communities that I'm studying. Uh, in at least one case, he didn't cite the community at all. So I don't know if it was related or, you know, just by chance that he was interacting there. But that was a great example of where I'm sure they disavow, oh, you know, we're not telling people to go kill a bunch of people on here or shoot them up. Uh, and that's true. Like, I don't see them saying, like, go, you know, commit mass murder right now. But, you know, at what point do you say you should anticipate yes. the language that you're using, that it's going to have these kind of effects? That got me interested in looking at some of the homicidal language that they were using. And so we did a survey looking at um, how many people that were uh, had engaged with that community, had experienced, witnessed uh, homicidal postings, suicidal postings, you know, a whole variety of other types of postings. Um, and I want to say the homicidality was around 15%. The suicidality was around 24 and a half percent, something like that. And these are not representative. You know, we, we don't do that. This is a first convenient sample. Um, but that just highlighted for me, there is a lot of violence on these forums. Yes. And, you know, the public needs to be aware of that. I think law enforcement, frankly, needs to have that on their radar um, because there, you know, there have been several cases now where we're like, was that related? You know, there's something in the news right. and we say, do they have a Reddit name? Do they have a Twitter account? You know, is there something we can trace? And uh, we need to start monitoring that, you know, and having that be in the same way, I think with the incel movement, um, you know, so incel involuntary celibates, um, I'm not an expert on them. <laughs> I have several colleagues who are. I, ju I just call them assholes, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, I try and have empathy where I can. It's like, I can see where like the struggle with the, the yes. dating is a common shared experience. But they've had nine mass murders attributed to their community. Right. And so we say, okay, they weren't openly saying go kill women, but they did. <laughs> and so how did that happen? What does that look like? And I think that's what we're seeing in these communities as well. It's like the same kind of trajectory where some of that inflammatory language, um, but it's not, um, it's clearly misogynist in many cases. And there are lots of papers about that now, but there's also, um, a real targeting of the pornography industry, you know, so they say, you know, porn did this to me, porn hurts everyone, porn is only trafficking. Um, and then their forums are filled with kill pornographers, hang pornographers, put their heads on a pike, do this, and I won't repeat the rest of it, it gets pretty explicit. Um, and so then they turn that to, you know, oh, he's in pornography, oh, she's in pornography. And so then anyone who's identified with the industry becomes a target. <laughs> 
This is Rosie Tran from Rosie and BJ Save the World, a podcast asking big questions and discussing how to solve these big issues. This is a podcast for people just like you who ask, has the war on drugs been successful? Do we need universal basic income? Should we legalize sex work? Go to rosieandbjsavetheworld.com to get more confused. Um, so I, I'm still working to understand like how they weaponize that kind of uh, rhetoric, but that's where my concern is, is like when we see aggression against uh, sex workers or against the pornography industry, uh, I, I believe that these groups are starting to incite real life violence. And we've seen some evidence of that. So I believe they're growing into kind of what the incel movement became, um, what might reflect in the abortion doctor debate that, uh, murder debate is how much that rhetoric, you know, has fed into actual real life violence. Um, and so, you know, it may not have been their original intention. It may be that most of the community rejects that, but if you act and behave in this way and post those things, is this something you should expect? Yeah. And just, just to clarify for people listening at home, how much of this is, would you say from the data you pulled is homegrown versus being egged on from overseas accounts? That's actually a really interesting question. So uh, in the Reddit community, we in general call those online asynchronous support groups. So there is a lot of um, groups on Reddit for helping quit uh, alcohol uh, consumption. For whatever reason, you don't have to be alcoholic, right? You just go on and get help. Um, people who are trying to stop marijuana for whatever reason, you know, they don't want to consume it anymore. You can go to a support group on Reddit. And those are pretty widely studied to see, you know, how effective are those. And one of the things that's often cited in that research is the benefit of Reddit is that you get perspectives uh, from across the world. Anyone who can speak English generally, most of them are English speaking, um, can come and get support, can get input, you know, and those kind of things. But I think in the pornography and sexuality space, that's actually a huge problem. So I've consulted for the World Health Organization. And when we meet, we always have to be mindful. For example, we want to ask about anal sex incidents in some cases um, because it's linked to a variety of outcomes we're interested in, but it's illegal in some of the countries. So we can't ask. And so you say, okay, is there, is there a way we could phrase it that kind of gets at it? And if we asked in that way, is that even still valid in the States? You know, are people going to understand it in the way that we're hoping? And so what I'm seeing in some of these accounts is, you know, Reddit, you don't have to identify anything. And so there's no guarantee. Um, number one, I'm seeing a lot of children. So Reddit's supposed to be 13 and over. These accounts are not over 13 in many cases. They're children. And we're not allowed to study children. So uh, we have to work with our ethics board to try and create standards to remove the child data as best we can. So right. for those, we just, we're not supposed to be looking at it as scientists. So we're trying to remove it. And also there's a lot of foreign accounts, you know, where someone will yes. say, I'm from Iran, I'm you know, from Singapore. And their expectations and understanding of sexuality is very, very different than it is in the US. So for example, we have, um, for people who aren't familiar, it's kind of an interesting history with homosexuality. I think many people know that homosexuality used to be pathologized. It used to be diagnosable. Uh, you know, so we had the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in the U.S. said that homosexuality was a pathology for a long time. I think it finally got removed in, oh, I'm going to get the date wrong. Um, I want to say it's like mid-80s or something. What was interesting is once it was removed from the DSM, it was put into the International Classification of Disorders or the ICD. And it was in there until 1994. <laughs> so 1994, uh, 1990 or 94, uh, somewhere in that range. So not long enough ago. And so right. what's interesting about that is the ICD reflects kind of diagnoses worldwide. So when the WHO committee that forms that uh, met and discussed it, they said, no, we think homosexuality is a pathology and needs to be, you know, included in this. Uh, and so we see, you know, some of that similar uh, attitude reflected when you look in these accounts that are international, where they say, you know, pornography isn't something people might choose to look at or a sexual preference or experience or choice. Um, this is evil. This is, you know, the devil at work. Um, you know, these, this, um, big, so they talk about big porn a lot. Um, and although I don't know where big porn lives, yeah, that, that, that's a very funny, weird description. Yeah. Yeah. And they, so I think it's a combination of like the forums, uh, tend to be very international, which you normally would think of as a good thing. But in this case, because it's a sexual content based, uh, forum, 
that creates problems because we have a lot of repressive communities that are also being represented um, where, you know, if we had these more progressive uh, representation, we might not see some of the shaming, the suicidal uh, talk, the homicidal threats. And so these people will say, you know, if I touch myself again, that's it. I'm putting the barrel in my mouth. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) You know, not to laugh, you know, it's not, I don't think it's funny. It's it's, it's ridiculous. I think we're laughing out of how how extreme and ridiculous yeah, it is and to say out loud. You know, I really wish someone. You know, so it's a combination of like these these boys. You know, they're largely very very young. Um, we think and having this international flavor where they don't think about like who are these people I'm talking to. Right. You know that they're all over the place and and I don't know to what extent these are bots. You know, so like the the forums that I've studied um, in this space have a very high deletion rate, for example, that seems really unique and they tend to be deleted by the moderators. And so there are uh, ways of grabbing those before they're deleted. So we right. use those and uh, the deletions are strange. You know, sometimes it's like they're definitely deleting dissent. So like when people say, Hey, I think this forum is BS that gets yeah. deleted. So there's no debate allowed. Um the, the if they make threatening posts, um, sometimes they're deleted, but they're often not. You know, so I can still pick them up and find them later on. Uh, and so that's another thing that's really interesting to me is like, what is the nature of <laughs> this really high deletion rate? So, in comparison to other actual support forums, like I'm doing a contrast with an alcohol support forum in this case, they have very low deletion rate. And why would you? You know, these are just people trying to talk through their alcoholism and get support online. If that was the same thing that was happening here, why is there so much that needs to be taken down? Exactly. So I just want to ask you real quick about what what your recommendations would be, like what just from your own experience and then from what you've seen from the data, like what would you? Oh man, uh, so it seems like this? how do we fix this? Has two potential meanings here. One is the disinformation issue, like correcting this bad stuff that's going on, and the other is the. Um, the personal threat safety kind of issue and how to handle that. So I'll try both. <laughs> I, I do not think in uh, the case of the space that I'm working in, the kind of anti-foreign movement in the U.S., um, it, it's so early that I'm not sure. But if I look at my colleagues' research, a lot of it is suggesting um, that confrontational escalation is not useful, but consistently delivering accurate scientific information can be effective. It just is slow. So uh, when you feel like uh, no one's listening, I'm talking to a wall, you are, and (laughs) there won't necessarily be a lot of movement, but, you know, consistently providing science-based good information, being sure you've checked your own sources, you know, we're uh, all guilty now and again, thinking like, oh, I know what this is. And then you click through, you're like, oh, that's not what I thought it was. (laughs) Click through first, you know, make sure it's, uh, it has the content that you believe is in something before you share it. Um, so that slow sharing movement, I think, is a good one uh, for everyone. You know, that's not um, to be one one sided or the other. You know, we all need to be mindful of what we're sharing. Uh, and so those are the two that I've seen that are kind of data based approaches to slowing disinformation spread. Um, I do think there's a space for censorship, uh, which I know a lot of people don't like, but I will say the conditions under which I think that's appropriate are the violence ones. That is, I think there are groups um, uh, like I did not lose sleep over Kiwi farms going down and some people are screaming censorship and are upset about it. Um, As far as I can tell, you know, I'm not an expert on Kiwi farms, but my read of it was it, it was just for breeding hate and harassment. And I see no purpose in a forum like that. Uh, it's not really helping anyone. Uh, it's not advancing even an unpopular opinion, really. It's just just to harass people. Um, that I think it was right. a, an easier decision than some others might be. And so I think when you know we can make cases in some of these to say like this person is really just inciting violence and doesn't have a role to play here. Um, so I think those are kind of three three places that are probably reasonable for that. Suggestions on the safety side, if you're facing this, uh, or God forbid, decide to do research in this area, (laughs) which I don't highly recommend. Um, There are a few things you can do. So uh, there, the FBI has a site that's called IC3 reports. So these are where you can make internet crime complaints. 
And these are indexed and they can only be retrieved by you or by a court order. So if you experience harassment and you say, oh, I don't really want it. the police don't write these down when I go to talk to them. I don't think they're taking them seriously. And I'm not even sure how serious this threat is, but I want it documented. I want a timestamp on it. You can fill out these complaints. Be sure you keep a copy of it with a date. And then if you ever need it, you can actually write to the FBI and ask for your own files, but no one else can get your files. So if somebody's bothering you and they write the FBI and say, you know, hey, what has this person said about me? The FBI will say we have no records. So it's a nice way for you to document harassment if you need to without nice. uh, much risk. You know, there's always some risk without, without much risk of like your uh, people coming after you causing problems. Um, when you go to the police, if it's gotten to that point, I think making sure that you insist that there is a report filed, even if it feels uh, insignificant to you say, you know, officer, I understand this may seem like nothing. It's a consistent pattern kind of thing where I need to document it. Can I bother you to, you know, put a report on it? So make sure it's not just an incident where they say, Hey, this woman called us. We don't know what's happening. Um, so like there was a case where, you know, I'd received a death threat and I wasn't persistent enough and wished that I had been at the time, uh, to kind of document what had happened. Uh, so when it gets to that point, you know, being sure that that's the case, knowing what your state laws are, and if it gets to the point where it's, um, you know, not uh, direct physical harm necessarily, but they're trying to harm you or your business. So they're saying, um, you know, I'm going to come after you. Most people can't afford to file defamation lawsuits. Like those are extremely expensive matters. Um, but I found there are some small claims courts that will hear these matters and that can help in one of two ways. So um, one is you could try, you know, to actually follow it all the way through and, uh, you know, have some judgment in that way. Uh, my, I, I'm not an attorney, so I don't know, you know, <laughs> to be fair, uh, what the likelihood is there. But one of the big benefits of filing is when you have these anonymous accounts and they're saying, you know, this, like I had an anonymous account even last week saying this person, um, you know, is a criminal, she's a stalker, she's an asset. All right. <laughs> enough <laughs> like you um you know you're bothering me you're coming after you're telling me this person you're telling a journalist i did this uh, this is this is beyond um you can use small claims actions in a defamation matter uh to discover the identity of the person that's making these posts so uh states differ in terms of how they handle those requests um but you know you have a legitimate claim to need to know who they are at that point uh, it doesn't always work. You know, I think we've all seen uh, media <laughs> experiences where that was the case. But often, I think with these harassers, um, you know, they're, a, they're an individual person who, who thinks they can get away with it because they have for years. And so if you can afford an $80 small claims action, yes. you might be able to use your court in that jurisdiction to discover who that person is to possibly stop the harassment. Even if just by outing them saying like, you know, you know, you shouldn't be doing this and that you're lying. Uh, and this has gone so far beyond, it's not tolerable anymore. This is not just an internet troll. This is someone who's becoming threatening. I'm worried about, you know, if people, for example, um, I always like to use the famous example with the uh, Clinton Pizza Factory, you know, marketing children supposedly in the basement. And then this yeah, poor pizza, pizza owner has some yeah. guy come in with a weapon, you know, like I'm going to shoot the place up because they incited violence against this guy with just an internet rumor. And so internet rumors really can become a problem like that. And uh, so if you feel like it's going there, it might be, I don't think it's, um, uh, it's a healthy level of paranoia, you know, so we can't have a here, but. Yes. Yes. I think that it's so important now. I honestly think that that's, I think we all, that's sort of our default is to have a healthy level of paranoia because it's, uh, I, I think the, the people that are doing this are so well organized in turn and a little more sophisticated than the rest of us in terms of using bots, right. And so in terms of using sock puppets, um, that we have to be, par we have to be a little paranoid. Yeah, no, there have definitely been some cases where like someone was bothering me. And as soon as I say, look, I'm going to follow smart claims if you don't stop this and I will find out who you are. All of a sudden, they don't only stop bothering me. They delete the entire account. And I was like, oh, but I know who that was, <laughs> you know, because it's these people. It's uh, I think the people who are really obnoxious, it's, a I think, a fairly tiny group that takes it that far. You know, most people get bored before they get to that point or they realize that's, uh, that's assholery. <laughs> you know, this is just, uh, just trolling. So, how vested are you in, uh, you know, just living your life to be a jerk? Uh, and some people are, you know. So it's 
it's been very interesting. Like since that guy passed exactly. away, we found a lot more sock puppet accounts because they all stopped posting the day he died. That's that. Yep. That does not surprise me. <laughs> uh, let me ask you real quick, just as just as we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't talk about that, that you would want, that you just want to highlight? I think in general, I'm really interested in, you know, the research we're doing is very much on the front end and trying to catch up with some of the research on more established extremist and misogynist groups online. So I'm doing a lot of outreach now, uh, starting to do a lot of scientific talks around these data that we're gathering so if folks know of other interesting data sources, uh, you know, good comparison sources, uh, I am interested to hear, you know, what kind of connections people may have or interests in that space, because it, it is so uh, kind of amorphous how people and scholars seem to end up finding each other or getting to a particular topic. And, you know, my skill set is in statistics, so I can pull the numbers, but I don't necessarily know the communications end as well. And so I'm starting those collaborations, but would love to talk to more folks who may have experience and know where to look or interesting data sets. I will definitely help get the word out with the show. Thank you. Most things people hate about the Internet comes from a lack of privacy, like those creepy ads that make you think your phone is listening to you. DuckDuckGo is an all-in-one privacy app that can help you with that. It's your internet browser with private search, tracking blocker, encryption, and even built-in email protection, all for free. Just go to DuckDuckGo.com to learn more. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Thank you for listening to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weiwo.tv special report. I'm your host, Rosie Tran. Today's episode was written by BJ Mendelson, produced by Andrew Van Voris, and sponsored by DuckDuckGo. Due to the overwhelming demand for privacy audits, we want to make a quick announcement before we go. Doing one-on-one privacy audits is super time-consuming. This means BJ has less time to write these episodes and the new book, How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So, along with his co-author, Amanda King, BJ is currently putting together an online course called Stupid Sexy Privacy which you'll be able to purchase here at stupidsexyprivacy.com. The course will walk you through every privacy tactic discussed in today's episode in greater detail. If you'd like to know when the course becomes available, you can email bj at bjmendelson at duck.com. The email address again is bjmendelson at duck.com. And we'll see you next time, right? Right?